Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Hey, we are happy to welcome a new voice, a new contributor to the show today. His name is Cody Wisniewski. And Cody, you are not only a Young Voices contributor, but I'm sure you wear a few other hats as well. Tell us just a little bit about yourself. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on. Uh, So I am currently the senior attorney for constitutional litigation at Firearms Policy Coalition. Uh, I also serve on the alumni board for the Emerging Leaders Council at the Steamboat Institute. Um, So essentially in my day job, I uh, sue the federal government. I'm a a constitutional lawyer, if you will. (laughs) Nice. Well, you're you're the right kind of lawyer as far as I'm concerned. It's (laughs) it's been a pretty interesting year, though, watching the Supreme Court uh, dealing with with various anti-gun laws that have have been struck down. Uh, I want to get your reaction. I take it you've probably been in the trenches for a little while. Did you see that coming or did this take you by surprise? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say, right? So it'd been a very long time since the Supreme Court had taken up a case on the merits, a Second Amendment case on the merits. The last kind of majority opinions that we've had were in 2008 and 2010 with a kind of an interim opinion in 2016 there in the middle. But, you know, it seemed very likely that the court or certain members of the court rather were kind of itching to address this issue, to weigh in and to kind of basically reset what the, the lower courts had been doing for the past you know, 14 years, essentially. And so, you know, I hesitate to say that I could have ever predicted that the court would, you know, definitely take a case on the merits and would definitely come out uh, the way that it did and, and in favor of Second Amendment protected rights. But it did seem like the tide was was turning in our favor, at least. <laughs> so in particular, the, the landmark decision that came down in New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. Bruin, um, that seemed to open the door for a number of other anti-gun laws to go away. And I'd like to get your reaction. First of all, um, if, if you could, give us the nutshell uh, explanation of what was what was at stake in New York's, New York State uh, Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin, and how did it open the door to striking down a number of other anti-gun laws? Absolutely. So, New York uh, State Rifle and Pistol Association v. Bruin, uh, on its face, addressed a uh, permit licensing law that New York State had for carrying handguns in public. And essentially, New York was one of a you know minority of states that was what we called um, may issue, meaning even if you met all the requirements, they may issue you a permit because they had these discretionary elements in place. And in reality, those discretionary elements were used to prohibit almost every ordinary individual in the state of New York, um, you know, everyday Americans from being able to carry firearms in public to defend themselves. So the Supreme Court reviewed that law. And really in Bruin, you kind of have three big things happen. First, they struck down that law. That was that was fairly straightforward. Uh, Second, the Supreme Court, for the first time, affirmatively said that the right protected by the Second Amendment, your right to possess arms for self-defense and other lawful purposes, extended outside the home. Now, I know those of you that have read the Second Amendment read it and it says keep and bear and bear seems pretty straightforward. But this was the first time that the Supreme Court had affirmatively said, you know, possession outside the home is protected. But then the last thing it did, which is really the big thing here, is that it the Supreme Court reiterated its test from its earlier case uh, in D.C. v. Heller, which came out in 2008. And in that case and in Bruin, 
The court said that when other courts, when federal courts are reviewing challenges brought pursuant to the Second Amendment, that the court has to look to the text of the Second Amendment as informed by history. So we call this kind of the original public meaning or originalism, uh, which is kind of a buzzword that a lot of people have heard in recent years. But essentially, it's the idea that the words of on the paper of any constitutional provision, in this case, the Second Amendment, mean what they meant when they were drafted and ratified, and that that amendment protects the conduct that it protected when it was ratified in 1791. And we can draw in historical analogs from that, but it's it's really important that the amendment means what it said when it was ratified and agreed to by the people. That puts a smile on my face. I'm just so happy to hear that that uh, such a ruling has come down. So now I have to ask, what is likely to fall next? What are some of the laws we could see go away because of this standard? Yeah, there's there's a couple big ones that are are fairly obvious. Um, so. Essentially, what the courts need to do now, and what they've supposed to have been doing all along, but now they 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 have a, a you know a more formal charge or a, an additional charge from the Supreme Court, I suppose, is they have to look to see if there are analogous his, historical laws that are related to the modern gun control laws in place. So, and the other side is the government bears the burden of proving that its law has a historical analog, which puts the weight on the government as it should be. So, for example, one key law that is they can't draw a single that any government can't draw a single historical analog to are laws uh, regulating magazine capacity. So a number of states in the United States have, you know, magazine bans and essentially they prohibit the possession, the sale, the transfer of magazines that can contain more than 10 rounds of ammunition. Some states like Colorado say 15, but 10 is, is most common. But the key is when you look back to. The, the laws that existed in 1791 regulating firearms and whatnot, there are very few. There's nothing that the, the governments could point to as an analog. But more than that, when you look to the firearms that were in existence in 1791, it's very clear that there were firearms that existed that could first fire more than 10 rounds without reloading. There are you know, demonstratives that were presented to Congress, the first Continental Congress that was a firearm that could uh, fire 16 rounds without reloading. And the gentleman said he was confident that he could make it up to 20. Wow. And, and then, yeah, so these it's, you know, everybody likes to say that there's no uh, connection to, to you know, our modern firearms to history, but that's just absolutely not true. The other side is there were also proto magazines around before 1791. Um, there's a, a famous firearm that was patented. I think it was in the 17th century, 16th or 17th century called the Puckle Gun. And the Puckle Gun had these sets of canisters that would come with it that were preloaded. And so you could just merely replace the canister and then continue firing. So you didn't have to you know, reload, jam down and reload every round or cycle through a repeating round. So there are historical analogs of firearms that could fire more than 10 rounds without reloading and firearms that had proto magazines. And yet, even with the existence of those things, there were no regulations, no laws on the books that prohibited individuals from possessing those kinds of arms, from you know being able to use those to defend their families and their nation, uh, their you know, brand new baby nation, um, there was nothing in place that prevented that. So there is nothing that these state or city governments can point to in order to justify their modern bans. Let's talk about so-called assault weapons. I, I'm sure that uh, this, this opens some interesting possibilities there as well. 
Absolutely. And it's much the same. So, you know, there were plenty of firearms that existed in um, in the founding era that people used that were functional for both self-defense purposes, but were also functional and used in war. I mean, Fowler guns, most people. So a Fowler gun is a really interesting kind of uniquely American firearm that existed um, during our founding era. And basically what they were designed for is they were designed for both kind of like hunting use in daily life where it was a little bit difficult sometimes even on the frontiers but people own them in, in cities and in the colonies as well but then fowler guns were also used in militia service during the revolutionary war so this idea that you can't possess a firearm that you know might also function in an active theater of war is ridiculous the only reason we have a nation in the first place is we because people possessed firearms that were useful in militia service. And so it's clear that, you know, much like that, you know, the AR is often lambasted or assault weapons, you know, quote unquote, are lambasted because the people call them weapons of war. Set aside the idea that obviously, you know, no active military in the world uses the type of weapons that are labeled assault weapons in active service. Even if they did, it's clear that that's not a justification for a ban. And that's not a justification that these cities and states can point to in order to say, hey, look, our laws are grounded in history because they just simply aren't. So we've got about one minute left here, but I have to ask you this. Is there ever going to come a point where the Supreme Court or some other entity in the federal government will acknowledge that the Second Amendment was never about sport shooting or hunting? It was about the citizenry retaining the power to resist tyranny, even if it came from their own government. You know, I think we're getting there. I think culture is shifting. I think the culture behind gun owners is really shifting. I think you're seeing more and more people that understand the real purpose of the Second Amendment. You are seeing some elected officials coming out and saying that that is the true purpose, that they understand that that's the purpose of the Second Amendment. You know, the court is uh, small seat conservative. It doesn't like to make broad statements like that depending on, you know, what executive you have in office after the next election or the election after that. I think it's very possible that that becomes more mainstream. You're seeing kind of the window, the Overton window shift on that issue. And people are really embracing the importance of not only individual self-defense, but self-defense from tyranny and and the, the benefits of an armed citizenry. All right. We are talking with Cody Wisniewski. He is a senior attorney for the Const- for constitutional litigation with Firearms Policy Coalition, as well as a Young Voices contributor. Cody, the question I have for you, where can people find you on social media? Where can they follow your work? Yeah, absolutely. So for gun pol- for Firearms Policy Coalition, you can follow us at, at Gun Policy on just about everything or search Firearms Policy Coalition. Uh, for myself, I am the Wizard of Laws with a Z on just about every social media platform. So go ahead and give us a follow, follow along with our work, follow along with my, uh, my writing and let me know what you think. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Hey, we're happy to welcome Mike Viola to the show. Mike, this is uh, my first time getting to talk with you. Tell us just a little bit about yourself, who you are and what you do. Yeah, so um, I work at the Foundation for Economic Education in Atlanta, Georgia, where I serve as the head of analytics there, kind of figuring out the best way to get our message out in front of uh, Gen Z eyes and ears. Um, Before that, I worked in finance for five years in Chicago um, and Prior to all that, I, this is a very circuitous route to the liberty movement. I studied poli-sci and Egyptology 
at the University of Chicago, which is known as a free market economics mecca, and it's where I gained my love of free markets, but I didn't actually study them. <laughs> I studied something very different, but um, it certainly got me on the path to wanting to work in the liberty movement, and you know, now I'm fortunate enough to do so at Fee. Well, if you're hanging with the folks from Fee, you're doing something right, because that is that is a great group of people. So, I'm looking at an article that you've written about how excessive regulations leave us less prepared for true crises. And boy, have we got a lesson in excessive regulations this last couple of years. Let's give a couple of examples of what, what do excessive regulations look like? Yeah, so a couple of examples I used in the article were um, both agricultural, actually. Um, one in Sri Lanka, where um, over the last, I think, about year and a half, their government has been imposing an all-organic agricultural regime in a country dominated by an agricultural sector and that it is not quite as developed as much of the Western world and simply does not have the resources to make that type of switch and handle all the additional costs imposed by those types of regulations. I mean, a, a well-developed Western power like the U.S. probably wouldn't be able to do so either. Um, that has led to widespread revolt, political unrest, um, and it, it's likely that there will, this will continue for quite some time, given the economic damage it's done to normal people. Another example, in the Netherlands, um, a few weeks ago, a climate action plan sought to cut back um, on a number of agricultural products, probably the most impactful being cutting back on livestock by 30%. As you know, you, you may know, we've heard much of the climate change discussion that um, cows can be major contributors to greenhouse, to greenhouse gases, um, but imposing that type of um, limit on a small country like the Netherlands, that is nevertheless the second biggest agricultural producer in the world, that's a huge blow to normal people whose jobs um, have been severely impacted they might not be able to continue to run small or medium-sized agricultural businesses. And again, that's going to lead to public unrest. Um, the problem in both of those countries, not only is do those regulations hurt normal people, but going forward, they also won't be able to handle the very complicated geopolitical situations that the world is in. They, in the midst of needing to recover from the damage of the COVID pandemic, are also kneecapping their own economy for abstract goals that are well out of our control at this particular moment. Um, and in the Netherlands case, um, they're in a Europe that at this point in, in recent history has been beholden to Russia for much of their energy supply, all while Russia is attacking another major Eastern European power. So this is very much not the time to try this kind of experiment, if there's ever a time. Um, but it's particularly bad amidst all of the other crises that they will need to cut back in certain areas on to tackle. Mike, I don't want to sound cynical, but sometimes I wonder if there aren't political leaders who just see crises as, ah, opportunity. This is a chance for me to push through whatever it is that they were wanting in the first place. But this is the excuse because, look, everybody's alarmed. Everybody's, you know, malleable and hopefully they'll go along with it. I mean, you mentioned in your article, President Biden has uh, has enacted a number, like dozens and dozens of, of uh, economically impactful um, policies that, uh, that are very much uh, something that we feel. I mean, every time I gas my car up, I think a little bit about Joe Biden, and it's not that kind. 
Right. That's very true. And um, it, it's impacted the way that people operate. You may notice in the last few weeks, gas prices have gone down a bit. Um, that's because demand has gone down for driving. Joe Biden, of course, has been attempting to take credit for that when, in <laughs> fact, his 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 policies have become so ruinous that things are now happening in, in reverse. We've essentially come full circle. So um, that's kind of where we are. I think this is um, the I, I appreciate your cynicism, as you mentioned, because I think this is almost like the the other side of, of say, Hayek's road to serfdom argument, right? That one intervention creates problems, which breeds more interventions to meet public demand to do something. And then we continue to breed these problems and, and governmental solutions, right? But like you said, oftentimes leaders see that as an opportunity, like, oh, I caused this problem. Well, let me get more involved. Oh, that caused other unintended consequences, well, I guess I'm going to have to get even more involved or take more credit for the mild solutions that we give at great trade-offs. So um, I <laughs> I think your cynicism, unfortunately, is pretty warranted. Yeah, I'm willing to let loose of it when I see something more positive. But, you know, something you bring out in your article, and I think this was just dead on, is the, the costs that go along with this regulation. Um, you know, they can tell us, you know, the, the policymakers can tell us, well, we're only doing this to save the climate or to, you know, to better your life, to make things better for you. But we feel those costs because none of it comes without a pretty significant hit to the taxpayers. Right. Absolutely. Um, and it's sort of difficult to make the case, for example, the Biden administration in not now, but in 2021, let's say predating the Ukraine crisis, um, making the case for all of these for abstract benefits far in the future. Um, I mean, some argue climate crisis is not that far in the future, but um, many of those predictions have been wrong repeatedly. Regardless, tackling the climate crisis while we were already coming out of a pandemic um, did not seem terribly smart. Um, and now that we are under the the a new world where we have to worry about Russia openly going after allied powers in Eastern Europe, um, which, of course, involves needing to cut back on our consumption of Russian energy on our end, the fact that we keep those types of regulations for no immediate benefit last year has really come back to bite us. Um, and that oftentimes uh, any sort of excessive regulation that you put in, you need to seriously consider, like, does this ruin our leverage, say, geopolitically, socially, a year or two out? So I have to ask your opinion on how this is likely to affect the midterms. I hear a fair amount of grumbling, and it's not just because I live in a particularly conservative corner of the country, but I, th I see people across the political spectrum feeling the pain of a lot of these uh, regulations. Is this going to come back to bite those who are currently holding the reins of power? Uh, yes, I would not be surprised if it does. I mean, I think that's almost baked in at this point. Um, my only real question there is, you know, to what extent can, say, um, Democrats in more competitive districts want to run away from the president? And if they can, will they choose to? Right. I think we've seen in recent years um, partisanship or, say, you know, the desire to appeal to the primary electorate um, can oftentimes severely conflict with the priority of appealing to the general electorate. And I'd say both parties, but especially Democrats, have um, gone for the former appealing for the base rather than the general. And if they do so this time around, there's going to be trouble. 
Okay. What do you recommend people, uh, where, what information sources would you point them toward to, to stay better abreast of uh, not just the regulations that are, that are coming out, but the, the costs that go along with them? Who do you trust? Well, at, at this point, I, I think some of the best sources are even just regular old business publications, right? Like, I love, I, I love the Wall Street Journal. Um, Bloomberg, which you know I know has has some reputation among conservatives for liberal bias, I nevertheless think Bloomberg is fantastic and generally very straightforward about the types of costs that are heaped on people. They have a very diverse cast of voices there, and I, I think that should absolutely um, be on everybody's radar. Um, but yeah, I mean, broadly speaking, this is one of the primary stories of. Um, living in America today. I don't think you need to dig deep for sources at this point. Um, frankly, I think sometimes the anecdata of talking to your neighbors and how life is being made difficult is really the best way to stay informed. Okay, there's one more source we're going to recommend, and that is Mike Viola. Where can people find you and uh, follow your work? Sure. So um, you can find me at MF underscore Viola um, on Twitter. Unfortunately, <laughs> someone else stole the version without the underscore. Um, and you can read, you know, a- occasional contributions from me and just about everyone else at feefee.org. And we are back. This is Moving Forward with Young Voices. And I'm happy to welcome to the program Finesse Moreno Rivera. This is our first time getting to, to meet you, Finesse. First of all, welcome to the show. Would you mind telling us just a little bit about who you are and what you do? Hi, Brian. Thank you for having me. So for the past over 10 years now, I have been an expert within the criminal justice reform field, um, specifically looking at the research as well as data analysis. I've worked with many criminal justice institutions, spanning from the FBI to the police department, specifically D.C. Police Department. And I've also done some contracting here and there as well. But overall, over the years, my main focus has been on criminal justice. Okay. I'm looking at an article that you wrote about how the U.S. war on drugs particularly has has high casualties in the black community. And and it's time for some solutions here. Um, I'm sure some people will recognize the war on drugs wasn't always, you know, a part of of what our federal government was doing. But uh, for the last five decades or so, they've been at it pretty hard. In your opinion, what uh, what exactly do the authorities have to show for their efforts? Overall, I think that they have very little to show. Um, Although the article is speaking to black casualties um, due to the war on drugs, what we're seeing with the big picture here is that they're making the same mistakes over and over and over again. Quite frankly, the definition of insanity, if you ask me, they continuously are putting in these policies that they know are going to have dire consequences. And unfortunately, what we're seeing is these consequences being black American lives. And and let's uh, let's flesh that out a bit. What uh, when we talk about some of the casualties that we're seeing, particularly in the black community, what does that look like? As of right now, especially since COVID, what we're seeing is an uptick in drug overdoses all around the U.S., but specifically with black Americans. Unfortunately, given the fact that we're already lower, so to speak, on our social hierarchy totem pole, we're seeing that we're having a lot more hand-to-hand contact with our street-level drug dealers who unfortunately have their hands on more potent and deadlier drugs. 
And I, I'm not trying to be a troublemaker here, at least I hope the authorities understand this, but the the prohibition itself is is really what uh, what empowers those those people out there on on the street corner selling drugs cuz they can make fantastic money thanks to the artificially limited supply uh, that's you know made possible through official prohibition absolutely and what we're seeing is the minute that you put up a barrier, you always find loopholes or ways that they can get around this, which is why we're seeing more daily or drugs here out on the streets, as well as these individuals who become used to policies and regulations and find ways around them. A perfect example would be our um, opioid epidemic as of right now, specifically fentanyl. As we know, dating back to 2018, the Trump administration actually went to China and discussed with them how they can better better regulate fentanyl as the majority of this chemical is coming from their country. However, unfortunately, what we've been seeing is that there are chemicals that mimic fentanyl that we can put together that will still give that same effect. So really, the prohibition of drugs has been an absolute disgrace to the American people. It has continued to make the war on drugs even worse, or pretty much just a failure in itself. You know, it's been interesting, too, to watch how many states have have taken, you know, and I'm maybe I'm wrong in referring to this as a lesser drug, but marijuana has been medically available as well as recreationally available at least since uh, 2012 in, in a number of states. I think we're up to, you know, almost half the states have some legal way of accessing it. But it seems like the federal government particularly has dug its heels in. They do not want to, to make any changes to the drug schedules. Why, would, why is it in their interest to hang on to keeping this illegal? I would, <laughs> the thing about scheduling of drugs is that, as you may know and our listeners as well, that it's based off of its addiction level, how likely it is to be abused, as well as its therapeutic use or medicinal um, use, if you will. What's interesting about marijuana as well as fentanyl is they are now Schedule One items. Although both of them can have, um, both of them also have been proven to have therapeutic use within them. What's really important to note here is that fentanyl has continued to remain a Schedule One drug. However, because of Schedule 1, we are unable to really dive into the therapeutic use, which is a shame because we also know fentanyl has been used for cancer patients in mitigating pain in the past. What's also important to note is that because FDA can't really get their hands in there and figure out how therapeutic these fentanyl-like substances can be, some of them have been shown to reverse the effects of an overdose. So it's something similar to Narcan. The reason why this is so important is because as we continue to see deadlier drugs, such as benzodope, these types of mixtures of drugs actually do not respond to Narcan. So the rate of overdoses are extremely more high. Wow. I wasn't even aware of that. Now, I, I know in your article, you reference that, look, it's time for the U.S. government to take responsibility for the drug epidemic and to support uh, treatment and evidence-based approaches. And you have three very specific recommendations. Would you mind walking us through those? Absolutely. So the first one I would have to say is really making sure that we have harm reduction strategies. And a very good example of this would be injection sites. 
as you know, and I'm sure there many have heard or even know of some within their city or even their state, just having those harm reduction programs such as safe injection sites really does minimize um, the the rampant spread of diseases that we see, as well as the health issues that these individuals are faced from day to day just by their drug abuse. A second harm reduction angle that could be used is also the fentanyl strip test which has been something that's been very much advocated for. However, unfortunately, throughout many of the states within the U.S., a lot of our policymakers are seeing this as condoning the testing strips rather than them be life-saving, which, again, looking at harm reduction, it's all about how we can meet these individuals where they are now and the long-term goal, and re- which is reducing the drug overdoses. And the very last solution that I give, and I know is rather extreme, I know for a lot of individuals, is just decriminalizing drugs altogether. Um, I know a lot of people automatically go to Portugal as an example, but please note in 2020, our very own state of Oregon went through and passed the policy based on the popularity of its own population to say it's okay for us to decriminalize all drugs, but a certain amount, a very small quantity. And that's still ongoing in Oregon um, as of right now and being studied. I'm glad so you mentioned a handful of solutions that can help. I'm so happy that you mentioned Portugal because I, I remember when Portugal, you know, decriminalized most every drug and, and moved it from being a, a criminal problem to more of a health care problem. And they they saw some very amazing results. But there were skeptics. You know, we've had, now we've had some time to, to see how that was going to pan out for them. And it sounds like it's panned out very, very well um, in the U.S. That's going to be a little bit harder sell, if only for the reason um, government derives so much power from keeping the drug war alive. And, and I'm not trying to talk down, you know, police officers and, you know, judges and detectives. And <laughs> I, I know that uh, they're trying to do what they hope is the right thing, but they're, they're not seeing the unintended consequences that, that you very clearly have outlined in your article. Absolutely. And again, you know, what we're seeing here is the ongoing feed into corruption, into disease, into racial bias, into deaths. And, you know, there comes a time when you really have to look at your actions, take responsibility and say, where have we gone wrong and how can we fix it? And unfortunately, up to this point, our government has decided that this is not where they are as of right now. They have they will continue to create the same policies. And unfortunately, black individuals are the ones who continue to pay for it. Finesse, I wonder how many people would remember or understand that prior to 1914, there really were not many drug laws in in the U.S. Basically, you could go to the pharmacy, you could get opium, you could get cocaine, you could get heroin if you wanted to. But the responsibility was on the individual as opposed to, well, you know, society needs to step up here and and protect you. That all changed in the early 20th century. Um, We're down to about a minute left here. Any thoughts that you would like people to take away from our conversation? If there's if there's one thing they remember from what they've heard from you today, what would you want that to be? I would want that to be to educate yourselves. Please do not think that you should just give all of your truth and everything you know to our government and always think that they want the best for us because, quite honestly, the majority of the time that they they honestly don't. They really do not. Um, And so it's very important to to stay educated and also to just stay in the know. 
Okay, how do people find you on social media and where can they follow your work? As of right now, right, I can be found via uh, LinkedIn. And then as I continue to put out my work more, uh, some more of my articles, I'll be sure to include those on LinkedIn as well. Okay. Again, we're talking with Finesse Moreno-Rivera, and she is a Young Voices contributor as well as an expert in criminal justice reform and research analysis. Thank you so much for being our guest. Thank you, Brian. Welcome back. This is our fourth and final segment today on Moving Forward with Young Voices. And again, I'm happy to welcome yet another new voice to the program. Her name is Quinn Townsend. And Quinn, I would love it if you would tell us just a little bit about uh, who you are and what makes you tick. Sure. Thanks for having me on. Uh, My name is Quinn Townsend. I'm the policy manager at Alaska Policy Forum, but I live in West Virginia. Um, I am a mountaineer, so I got my master's degree in natural resource economics from West Virginia University, and that's where I am now. Okay. I'm looking at an article that you wrote for Real Clear Energy about how beefing up the EV or electric vehicle tax credits won't help climate change. And I got to tell you, my interest picked up right away because... It sure seems like there is a major push to get as many people as possible into electric vehicles. Give me, if you would, kind of uh, the the lay of the land. Where are we right now in terms of, of energy policy, and why is this push for EVs so strong right now? Yeah, EVs are increasingly popular, and there's a lot of um, new companies entering the market. Um, and as many people know, I'm sure um, the U.S. government has uh, policymakers in the U.S. have really been pushing um, climate change policies. So policies to address and um, roll back the effects of climate change and electrical vehicles. So EVs are one really big push um, that policymakers are making so that people switch to electric vehicles rather than their gas guzzling um, vehicles. Speaking of gas guzzling vehicles, I, I heard from a friend earlier today that uh, one of the parent companies for Dodge and Chrysler just announced that uh, the, the Dodge Charger and the Dodge Challenger, there will be one more model year for each of them, and then they're done. And, and the move is toward <laughs> electrification and EVs. So even the mighty have fallen, so to speak. Yeah, that's interesting. Talk to me about the uh, Inflation Reduction Act. I know this was recently passed, and I I understand that this includes some goodies, um, not just for inflation, but also for uh, tax credits for new and used electric vehicles. What what's the story there? So there's a um, a large portion of the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, is um, addressing climate change. And one portion of the climate change part of the bill is a tax credit, several different tax credits for EVs. Um, and the the main tax credit is, it's like $7,500 um, tax credit for you to buy an EV. Um, as long as you're, if you're buying a sedan, it must cost less than $55,000. And if you're buying an SUV or a truck, so a larger vehicle, it must cost less than $80,000. And then of course, there's also income caps. So if you're a two income household, um, 
you're not eligible for the tax credit if you, as a household, make more than $300,000. And then I believe for a single individual, it's $150,000. Um, there's also a tax credit, a smaller tax credit for used EVs um, and hybrids. Um, that's up to like $4,000 as the tax credit. Um, so that's the background on on what the tax credit is. Wow. I'm I guess I'm, I'm not that surprised, but it sure seems that uh, there, there's a determination on the part of government to get as many people into these EVs as possible. And I, I just want to get your opinion. Is this a good thing or is this something, will, will the free market ever catch up to, to where naturally people want, you know, the demand for vehicles is so high that, uh, you know, you would see uh, numerous companies starting up. It just seems like there's a lot of red tape, no matter which direction I look on this one. There's a lot of red tape um, involved with electrical vehicles um, from several different fronts, not just what I wrote about in my op-ed. Um, but we do, I maybe I'm optimistic, but I really think that the market could get there on its own without policymakers pushing this on um, manufacturers and families um, because there are so many startups that are so many EV startups that I don't even know the names of techy and complicated for me to remember, but there's there's clearly a demand for EVs, um, but it's also a newer technology. And just like with any other technology, um, it will start out expensive. So most electrical vehicles are more expensive um, than your typical, what we're used to for a car, which a brand new car is expensive for many families anyway. Um, but as as companies continue to make and improve on vehicles and people demand continue to demand them, the price can go down. Um, but with the government um, implementing these tax credits, it it forces the market to go faster than it's really able to. And um, I don't think the results will be as beneficial as if we just let the market do what it does best. Something you point out in your article, too, is when it comes to these EVs, um, the batteries and then the, the rare earth minerals and, and the, the things that go into making those batteries, that's not something that we are currently in a position you know, here in the U.S. to, to do at, at a large scale. Now, we could get there, but it sounds like we're getting kind of mixed signals from the Biden administration in that it sounds like they, they've actually restricted access to a couple of mines that could be helping us you know, have a, have a little more uh, self-sufficiency in terms of uh, having the raw materials to create those batteries. Yes. So the Biden administration um, back in April implemented the um, the DPA, which is the Defense Production Act, um, to try to push um, the, the extraction of critical minerals in the U.S. because China specifically owns the lion's share of extraction and processing in critical minerals, which we need to make the batteries for EVs. Um, so the argument from the Biden administration in implementing the DPA for critical minerals is that the U.S. needs to be doing this because we don't want to rely just on China. However, at the same time, the Biden administration has also been throwing up lots of red tape um, to avoid approving many mining operations in the U.S. Um, for the critical minerals that we need for EV batteries. So it's just very contradictory policies and language saying we need to produce 
extract um, these minerals in the U.S. where we can do it cleaner and and uh, more ethically than places like China. Um, but then they're throwing up lots of red tape so that it can't actually happen. Yeah, I I mean something you pointed out in your article here about you know the made in America requirement that uh, that's put on these EV companies if they want to receive this uh, tax credit under the um, Inflation Reduction Act. That's that's not going to make it very easy for them when we can't provide the materials so that they can make them here in America. Right. The um, the requirement in the IRA is that um, the final assembly of the vehicle must be in North America, I think, which is effective as soon as President Biden signs the bill. Um, so pretty soon. And then there's requirements for how much of the minerals for batteries, um, which I think is by 2025, is almost 0% needs to be, almost 100% needs to be extracted um, from you from the US or a country with which we have a free trade agreement, um, which the US has plenty, has plenty of mineral deposits. But again, because of red tape, it's really hard to get a mine um, approved in the US. Yeah, it's something you point out again here too. Is if if we really want to incentivize EV companies to to continue to build, improve, and and to to make these vehicles affordable to where everybody can afford to get one, um, subsidizing them through these tax credits really isn't the way to do it. Now, you actually had some pretty good suggestions as to uh, to what policymakers might do. Would you care to to share those with us? Sure. Well, my my blanket suggestion is just to get out of the way. Amen. There are so many <laughs> there are so many innovators and entrepreneurs who when it comes to EVs and batteries and mining know, know much more than me and much more than policymakers and if policymakers should, could just get out of the way and allow them to do what they, what innovators do best, they could really allow the market to flourish and create the the change that that we want. Is it likely that uh, they're going to get out of the way? Because right now it sure seems like the regulatory sure footprint is growing. Like yeah. <laughs> what are what are some of the the companies that that you're keeping an eye on as far as EVs? You mentioned in your article um, under some of the conditions of the. Uh, um, the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, for instance, mm -hmm. only the big companies are the ones that really seem to have the resources or advantage to be able to make it work. But are there up and coming companies that, that might still make it? Or are there some that have, have caught your interest? Um, I mean, one that I've seen lots of the media talking about a lot is a company called Rivian. Um, and I know that they don't have their vehicles on the road yet. Um, there's but there's multiple, but the, the companies that are already established, so Ford, Tesla, they're the ones that can already, that can switch their supply chain, um, whereas those startups. Okay, Quinn, uh, unfortunately, we are up against the clock here, but tell people where they can find you on social media. Sure, I'm Quinn Townsend1 at, um, at Twitter. 